0: (laughs) time to begin, and we're on page 22 in your notebooks. Next Wednesday, no class because it's the night before Thanksgiving. And after tonight we have three more sessions. So you've almost endured to the end, and we'll make tracks and finish everything that you have in your notebooks there. And in fact, we can finish out all the way through the book of Revelation tonight... And begin starting on the second section of this course. First section that we've been in all of these weeks after the introduction is survey of the Bible. That's what we've been doing. But then part number two is understanding the Bible, how to interpret it. And then part three is how to apply the Bible. So in these next four sessions, counting tonight, we can get to, to all of that. Top of page 22, you see that we are in the Acts and the epistles, that is, the letters of the Apostles and at the top of page 22 it says Acts chapter 13 and and chapter 14 now the reason for that is on page 23 if you turn over to page 23 notice that you have uh, you, you see in that grid there where it says law on the left and then, as you move to the right, you've got the book of Acts. And at the beginning of the book of Acts, you have James. But then you have Peter, and then you have, and then you have Paul. So you have Peter as James for a brief period, but then you have uh, Peter as the main character, human character, in the book of Acts through chapter twelve. Then beginning in chapter thirteen, Paul becomes, the main uh, human actor. And that's why then, back to page 22, top of page 22, part 2 of looking at the book of Acts begins in chapter 13, because that's where Paul then becomes the major figure, and that for the rest of the book, all the way through chapter 28. And as the book of Acts documents the ministry of the Apostle Paul, beginning in chapter 13 through the end of the book of Acts, you find him visiting all of these cities on his missionary journeys. Many of those cities then will become prominent later in your New Testament because he writes letters to them. And that's why the top of page 22 says we're looking at the Acts of the Apostles, but also the epistles, the letters of the Apostles. Thirteen of those letters in the New Testament uh, or books of the New Testament are written by none other than this Apostle Paul. So as we go through the book of Acts you're seeing him in that latter half visiting these cities and then for many of them writing back to them to correct in many cases issues that have have arisen. So that's the, one, that's the first thing I want you to see about this. The second thing I want you to, to note is as Paul goes on these missionary journeys And I call them missionary journeys because on page 22, you see Acts 13 and 14, the first missionary journey. Then if you look down to chapter 16, the second, and then chapter 19, the the third, and then finally the journey to Rome. So Paul is on on the move throughout the the book of Acts. He goes on these missionary journeys. And what you should notice in all of these missionary uh, journeys, in his ministry, when he goes to these various cities, he does some of the same things over and over again. And those same things are quite important and instructive for us today. He he preaches the gospel. That's the first thing he does. He goes into a city, he finds some venue to preach the gospel. And that venue is very often in a synagogue. If he can find a synagogue in the city, he knows he has a ready audience that at least knows something about the first part of the Bible and the promise of a Messiah, and now he can come and say, this is the identity of that Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the the Messiah. But if it's not at a synagogue, then he will go into a marketplace. And as we've seen on Sunday mornings in our first hour, because we're going through the book of Acts, uh, just this past week, he rented for two years a lecture hall, either owned or, as one of the prominent speakers in this place, uh, it's named for a guy named Tyrannus, And he rented this and he held forth there in the city of Ephesus for for two years. So, synagogue, go to the marketplace where people uh, would gather. Any place where he could get uh, an audience, he would communicate the gospel. And God has people in all of these cities. Some people are converted in these cities. So, the gospel is communicated. Converts uh, are, are born again, come to Christ. And then, importantly, they are gathered into churches. So that's important for us today because it tells us how ministry is supposed to go. Ministry is supposed to happen through the agency of God's gathered people in the local church. And you see that in Paul's missionary journeys. He doesn't just see people converted. He is not a hit-and-run evangelist. And and that's what many of us have come to think of when we think of evangelism. That an evangelist goes into a city, preaches the gospel, and then just leaves. But in the New Testament, that's not what an evangelist was. An evangelist did not just go into a city, preach, and then leave. But rather, Paul would stay long enough to establish some leaders, leave some leaders behind that could then stabilize uh, the, the church and pass the baton to, to other leaders. Uh, so it wasn't until he was able to do that, leave the, the converts in capable hands, or stay long enough himself to see the church gathered and organized and then become self-sufficient that he would move on. So this idea of the centrality of the local church is, is really important. Now, if the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, like, like you know, if he just did that on the first one, that does not a pattern make. But if he does it on the second one, all right, now we're getting pretty close to a, a pattern here. The third one, we've got a, we've got ourselves a genuine pattern here. The local church. And to where is he writing these letters back? It's to these churches. They're addressed to the church in the city of Ephesus, the church in the city of Philippi, the church in the city of Thessalonica. The church is really important. And when he's not writing to a church, he's writing to like pastors of churches. What we call the pastoral letters, the pastoral epistles, Titus. And two letters to his young protege Timothy, first and second Timothy. So it's pastors of churches. It's two churches as a whole. And so important is the centrality of the church that in First Timothy chapter three and verse uh, 14, First Timothy chapter three, verses 14 and 15, Paul says, "I have written you these things." so that you may know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. I, Paul, have written you, Timothy. This is 1 Timothy 3.14. I, Paul, have written you, Timothy, these things. Here's why. So that you may know how people ought to conduct themselves in And here's what he calls it, God's household, the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. So what is this God's household? Church of the living God, pillar and foundation of the truth. You know, as you read through your New Testament, you find that the word church, the Greek word ekklesia, translated church, used 114 times in the New Testament, 114. Of those 114, 99, are used of a local church, a local assembly. And then you've got this couple of handfuls where it's not used of a local assembly, but it's used of the church universe, the church, the body of Christ, capital B, capital C church, that is not a local church, not a church assembled in a particular locale, but rather all of the body of Christ, everybody who has come to Christ, wherever they are located. It's used that way sometimes. So in 1 Timothy 3.15, when it says, I've written so that you may know how people ought to conduct themselves in in God's household, church of the living God, pillar and foundation of the truth. Which one are we talking about? Local or or universal? Well, the context of 1 Timothy 3 makes it indisputable, believe it or not, that he's talking about the local assembly, the local church. With those kind of lofty titles, God's household, It's the church of the living God. It's the pillar and the foundation of the truth. Now, I say the context makes it indisputable that we're talking about a local assembly. How so? He says in verse 14, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14, I have written you these things. What things? And if you were to go back to chapter 2 in 1 Timothy, chapter 2, And you were to look at verse 1, in most of your Bibles, you'll have some kind of a heading there, and it will say something like, principles for worship, or rules for worship. And beginning in 1 Timothy (coughs) chapter 2, Paul begins to lay out, here's the way public worship ought to go. And he says in chapter 2, that prayers uh, should be made publicly, for kings and all of those in authority. Because we desire, we Christians desire to live quiet and peaceable lives. So pray for the kings that they'll keep everything safe so that we can do our thing. I mean, that's really what he's saying. We can live quiet and peaceable lives. And this pleases God our Savior, who would have all men to be saved. He says, so this is about our gospel mission that we pray for this to, to happen. And then he, so that's how worship ought to go. It ought to include that. And then he starts to talk about the role of women in worship, in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Then you come to chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3, the first verse. He says, if anyone desires the office of an overseer, the King James says, if anyone desires the office of a bishop, and in the New Testament, the terms bishop, overseer, and pastor are used interchangeably. So you've got You've got all of those uh, used for the same office. You've got these three Greek words, um, presbyteros, is uh, where we get presbyterian from, and it means an an elder. And then you've got a poimane, that's a shepherd, that's a pastor. The overseer or bishop is an episkopos, that's where you get episcopalian from. But in the New Testament, those terms are all used of the same office, same person. So, we go generally by pastor, but as of tonight, I want to be called bishop. <laughs> it just I, this has a ring to it, man. I like it. Bishop Brown. Is that, is that doctor? <laughs> That's right. And don't you forget it. That's right. <laughs> So, but if anyone desires the office of an overseer or bishop, he desires a good work. Now, an overseer, this is what it says verse 2, Now an overseer, a bishop, must be blameless, the husband of but one wife. And it goes on to give the qualifications in order to be a, a pastor, an elder, an overseer in, in the church. It goes all the way down to verse 7. Then in verse 8, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 8, deacons likewise... And it starts to give qualifications for deacons in the church. And then you come to verse 11, it says, and their wives. It talks about the deacons' wives. And then verse 12 goes back to the deacons. And then you come full circle to what I've been talking about. 1 Timothy 3.14, I have written these things to you. What things? How worship ought to go. Role of women in in the church qualifications for leaders in the church, pastors and deacons and and wives. I've written you these things so that people will know how they ought to conduct themselves in God's household, church of the living God, pillar and foundation of the truth. You guys with me that that's the local assembly. It's not the universal church, the local assembly where you have pastors and deacons and deacons' wives, where you pray for kings and all of those authority. That's where all of that stuff happens so I'm not blowing smoke when I say on these missionary journeys when he goes to these cities he doesn't do this hit-and-run thing he doesn't just give the gospel as important as that is of course and essential as that is but rather gathers those converts into local churches establishes leadership where they can then be uh, where they can be built up in in the faith and then he moves on that's what a, that's what a missionary does that's what, and, and in the new testament An evangelist was a church planter doing that, going to different places and doing that. So for our church, that's what we support in terms of missions. We support people who do that, who go into a city and they preach the gospel and gather people and all the stuff we just said. And there are lots of good things that people could do when they go to another another country, go into a city. Lots of good things, but nothing better than this. And so this is New Testament missions. This is what we partner to do. All right, so I can go through fairly quickly page 22 then. One, having said all that, two, since we're going through the book of Acts on Sunday mornings in our first hour, uh, we've already covered some of this and we'll cover the rest. But chapter 13 and 14, it's the first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas go to uh, are sent from Antioch out on their first missionary journey, and they report back to Antioch. So that's important for a missions paradigm as well, a missions model, that you're sent by the church, and then you report back to the church. That's how important the local church is. The local church authorizes you to go and do this. And then you come back and report to the church that that sent you. So, you know, people do parachurch stuff. You guys have heard of that, parachurch? Para-church means beside the church. And a lot of the ministries that you're familiar with, the the big media ministries and all that, they're they're like para They're not under the auspices of a church. They're para-church. They're like independent doing their own thing. And as you go through the New Testament, I would just suggest to you a cursory reading of the New Testament would say that the church is where the action is. And it's not parachurch stuff, it's it's the church and ministry should take place under it and be sent by it and report back to it. That's what happens in these missionary journeys. In between the first and the second one, you have the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council is is called to determine what do we do about these Gentiles that are coming to faith. Because as a result of that first missionary journey, that's what was, was happening. And so, what are we going to impose upon them? Are they going to have to become, in effect, Jews in order to be part of this new thing, the church? The answer was a resounding no uh, from the Jerusalem Council. A letter was circulated among the churches to, to say that. Chapter 16 through 18, there is the second missionary journey. After the Jerusalem Council, Paul left on a second missionary journey, again from Antioch, but this time, with Silas, it extended to Greece. Timothy joined them in Lystra and Luke in Troas. The principal city, however, was Corinth, where Paul stayed for a year and a half. During this trip, he sent Timothy back to see how the Thessalonians were doing. He received a good report, and upon that good report, he wrote the, books of the letters of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians to them. Although not connected with Paul's journey, the Gospels of Matthew and Mark were written about this time as well. And then a third missionary journey, and that's, this is now where we are, chapter 19, on Sunday mornings in our first hour. After visiting Jerusalem and Antioch again, he began his third missionary journey, spending most of his time, three and a half years, in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus developed into the third major city of Christianity, Jerusalem and Antioch. Third major city. So some of you have heard me say, call those major cities where these churches are epicenter churches. That's what they are. They're, in my mind, an epicenter church. That is, Jerusalem sent sent people out. And so you have the ripple effects of the ministry in, in Jerusalem. And then, likewise, Antioch, we've seen, sent people out. And now Ephesus does the same thing, and churches are planted in Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis. Goes out from from Ephesus. And then there's going to be a fourth one later, and that's going to be Rome. So in your New Testament, you have four of these epicenter churches. And what a great thing for a church to aspire to be, an epicenter sending kind of church. So middle of that uh, paragraph, it's also probable that Paul wrote the books of Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians from Ephesus at this time. He revisited other Greek cities, and in spite of a warning from the Ephesian elders, he did return to Jerusalem. And then chapter 22, through the end of the book of Acts, the journey to Rome, he's arrested in Jerusalem, taken to Caesarea, where he's imprisoned for two years. We're going to see all of this in the weeks ahead in our worship hour. While there, he made his defense before Felix, a Roman governor. He was then tried before the new governor, Festus, and because Paul appealed... to his Roman citizenship, he was sent to Rome to be tried before Caesar. Let me stop there for a second. Because he appealed, it says, to his Roman citizenship, he's sent to Rome. So Paul had the advantage of being a Roman citizen. And Roman citizens were afforded uh, certain legal rights. You know, so as American citizens, we're familiar with many of our rights. And you have the right to remain silent and you know all of that. And you have the right to not incriminate yourself so you can plead the fifth and those kinds of things. Well, Rome had these kinds of privileges and you could appeal your case. And so Paul did that. Now I find it instructive, and I submit this for your consideration, for you to think about how Paul approached the Roman authorities. As we go through the book of Acts on Sunday mornings, we're going to see that Paul approached these Roman magistrates who are mistreating him for doing nothing but preaching the gospel. But you ever notice how respectfully he approaches them? He's he's quite respectful to them. And remember what he told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2? Pray for kings and all of those in authority. So does that sound like what Christians are doing today with the government? Respectful? praying for? It's kind of not what we have going on, is it? And we haven't had it for the last several years. Mm-hmm. And some of us have been trying to call the church back to that, because that's what you see. That's what you see in the New Testament. What, what we care about is the mission of Jesus. And what we want from the government is that we can live quiet and peaceable lives. So that we can go about our business. And and we want to be credible witnesses for Christ in the process. And not lose our credibility by the way we behave in the public square. Everybody good with that? So I get a little riled up sometimes about that. And, uh, but that's what, that's what you see. And that's what you see Paul, Paul doing. And that's the way we should behave and that's the way we should, should pray. So he appeals, he makes what I call a respectful appeal. And you always, when you are under authority of whatever type, governmental authority, um, employment authority, you always have the right of respectful appeal. But it should be respectful appeal. Christians are not rebellious people, believe it or not. I mean, some of the people, all right, I really am going to get off of this, but I mean, some of the people telling us that this is what we as Christians have got to do you know, and we've got to rebel and we've got to overthrow the government and all of that. I'm looking for, you know, a couple of passages for that. I mean, about as close as I can come is, you know, a guy named Simon the Zealot. You remember he was one of the Twelve Apostles? And the Zealots were actually a political party. They were called the Zealots. And they were about overthrowing the Roman government. And then Simon becomes a Christian. And Simon the Zealot calms down. And he's no longer about overthrowing the Romans. He's about spreading the message of King Jesus. So that's, 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 that's you always have the right, whether you're in an employment situation, whatever it is, a child to a parent. You have the right of respectful appeal. And then once you're heard with that respectful appeal, You don't demand to be heeded. Being heard is not the same as being heeded. And we don't demand to be heeded. We respectfully ask to be heard. State your case and then put it in the hands of a God who owns that boss of yours and who owns the government. All right, toward the bottom of page 22. This is just all therapeutic for me. I just come away from these nights just feeling so much better. <laughs> Bottom of that paragraph for chapters 22 through 28, during these imprisonments, he wrote the prison letters, the prison epistles, so-called because he is, he's in prisons when he writes Ephesians, Philemon, Colossians, and Philippians. At the same time, Luke, who appears to have remained with Paul during those imprisonments, wrote the Gospel of Luke and the, the book of Acts. The later letters, uh, the later epistles, the Apostle John moved to Ephesus. A few years later, AD 70, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. About this time, Jesus' half-brother Jude, another son of Joseph and Mary, wrote the book of Jude. Meanwhile, the Apostle John had moved to Ephesus where he escaped martyrdom. He lived for another 25 years. There he wrote the Gospel of John and the letters of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. The last book of your Bible, the book of Revelation, John wrote while exiled on Patmos. In the 90s AD, a new persecution began. John was exiled to this island off the coast of Ephesus. There he wrote the book of Revelation, then probably returned to Ephesus and died there. And that ends your your New Testament. So the book of Revelation, uh, when we do Master Plan for Life, which is our other foundational class. So this is one of our foundational classes. The other one's Master Plan for Life. We have a couple of lessons on the fancy term is eschatology, end time stuff. So we talk a little bit about the book of Revelation and what we believe the book of Revelation is saying is going to happen in the future. So we'll deal with that in that, in that class. So if you wanted me to get into the Mark of the Beast and uh, all of that and make some predictions about the return of Christ, sorry to disappoint you. That's... Uh, that's not the way I roll okay so page 23 then summarizes all of that the acts and letters of the Apostles part 2 and you see all the books of the New Testament up at the top there you see them vertically so they are arranged in about the time frame you got the timeline going along the bottom there. so it gives you an approximate time that these books were written far right you see the book of Revelation because that's the last one written in about 95 AD. And then underneath, you see uh, that timeline. You, You have not the books, but you've got people and prominent people from the fourth century AD to the last century, or the last, from the fourth decade of that first century to the last decade of that first century. And if you look at the church in the world there and the the lines, just like all these other charts that we've had, if you want the answers to that, they're on the previous page. Mm -hmm. So you can do that on your own time. And then down at the bottom, you've got a map showing you where some of these things are happening. Okay? Mm -hmm. Any questions? Anyone care? Mm -hmm. All right. right. Thanks for caring. Go ahead. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Yes, sir? Even if it's kind of off topic, can I still... um, Well, I'll be the judge of that once you (laughs) give me the the question, all right? um, (laughs) I guess, uh, I I actually asked Dr. Snowberger when he was here the same question. Okay. What what is your take or change on the church as far as replacing Israel? Yeah. Do you agree with that or disagree with that? Yeah, I, I disagree with that. I know Snowburger told you he he disagrees with it too, yeah, yeah. So Snowburger got everything he has from me, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so other than what what is it uh oh, it's Jeremiah three where it talks about God writing a certificate of divorce to Israel? Mm-hmm. Um then I mean if you would literally read within a handful of verses after that, um and talk about how you won't be mad forever yeah. if sure back. Yeah. So do you know how do people come to that conclusion? I mean that's what generally... Like, truly stumps me, and I don't understand how people get to that. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, it's a, it's a good question. Um, the, you know, the way you do it is when, when Christ comes on the scene, and uh, Israel rejects her Messiah, and Jesus says on the night before he's crucified that this is the new covenant in my blood. So he's inaugurating the new covenant. And so you go back to the first part of the Bible, and you got Jeremiah 31, you got Ezekiel chapter 36, and it talks about this new covenant that's that's going to happen. But Jesus is saying, I'm I'm establishing that now. And and yet Israel is rejecting me. So, you know, it's not it's not far-fetched, even though I don't agree with it, it's not far-fetched that you have the new covenant being inaugurated by Jesus and and he did inaugurate the new covenant and it's now being taken then by Jesus and his followers rather than a nation called Israel and so the idea is that's over with and that's not the only thing but it's one of the first things is the way the new covenant is inaugurated Um, and then there and then there are other things Uh, Acts chapter 2 one way Acts chapter 2 is interpreted as Peter preaches a sermon about David being at the right hand of the, the Father is that the kingdom of Jesus has been, has been established at the right hand of the Father, and that that is David's throne as promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, that, I mean, those are just some of the ways that's, that's done. And again, it's not far-fetched, and lots of great people uh, approach it that way. Um, you have Paul saying in 2 Corinthians chapter three, all of the promises of the uh, of the prophets are yes and amen in Jesus. So the idea there would be all the promises have been fulfilled in Jesus, including all these promises to, to Israel. So th- those are the way the ways that that's done. Now I think all of those are wrong. Okay. <laughs> no, and I'm in with you it means yeah. But you're just asking how it happens. I'm just trying to give the, you know, and I'm trying to be fair in the, in the way that, that that happens. But as I say, I, I think all of those are wrong. But uh, lots of good people differ on that. So when we do Master Plan for Life, which all of you guys are going to attend, are we on the same page here? We're we all attending? Okay, Master Plan for Life. Some of you have already attended Master Plan for Life. Is that right? All right. You don't want to take it again? You hated it the first time. There's no way. <laughs> You actually flunked. Did I tell you that that you flunked? The f- so we'll go over some of that then. Good question though. All right, take a look at page Is it 27 in your notebook? Page 27 for our part 2 now, understanding the Bible. Page 27. So we've completed survey of the Bible, now understanding the Bible, and then lastly we'll look at part 3, applying the Bible. So understanding the Bible. The Bible has both divine and human authors. Let me stop there. Both divine and human authors. So divine God is the ultimate author of Scripture. Human authors. You have 40 human authors writing over a 1500 year period. The 66 books that are in your Bible. So you've got both of those. For every book in the Bible, you've got a human author and you've got God. So every book in the Bible has at least two two authors. I mean, Some books in the Bible have more than two. Like the book of Psalms has 150 Psalms in it. David wrote most of them, but not all of them. So you've got some other people involved. But you've got God and at least one human author. That right there creates issues if you're not careful. Because you then have to decide, all right, whose meaning do I want? Do I want God's meaning or do I want Paul's meaning? Do I want God's meaning or Moses' meaning? Or Daniel's meaning? Or Peter's? Whoever it is. So you you, you have to decide that. Now, you might immediately say, well, of course I want God's. But I would suggest to you, and I'm going to suggest pretty strongly here, that there's no difference between them. Because, remember at the very beginning of this class, we talked about what the inspiration of the Bible is? And it's God superintending the human authors so that they wrote what he wanted written. So if you drive a wedge between the two, if you say, well, there's God's meaning and then there's the human author's meaning. If you do that, you're now going to come up with funky ways of interpreting the Bible. You'll come up with a sort of God way, divine way, of interpreting the Bible. And I suggest that because it was written by human authors, using human language, and grammar and syntax and all of the stuff that we use to communicate, that God himself designed it for you to interpret those human elements the way you interpret human communication. That there isn't a divine way to do this and that the the meaning that Paul intended or Daniel or David or Peter or any of the biblical writers is the one that God intended. So that you can use normal rules of interpretation to arrive at the meaning of the Bible even though, yes, it is different than other other uh, literature, in that it has at least two authors for for every book. So back to top page twenty seven. Yes, it has divine and human authors. Be careful about that. That is, although God is the source of the scriptures, man composed it. God has providentially superintended the production, the compilation, and the preservation of the Bible in order to communicate His message to mankind. The successful communication of any message, whether from God or man, always requires interpretation. You guys are interpreting as I speak right now. You're not really thinking about it, because you're half asleep. But you're, you're interpreting, and you don't have to think about it. And the reason you don't have to think about it is because of what the second paragraph says. Interpretation is not often given sufficient consideration because most interpretation occurs instantly without conscious thought. You're doing it right now. You're just not having to think about it. You can just do it like that. We're going to talk about why you can do it without thinking about it here in a a moment. So just above that box there... I went just below it, but look back just above it again. The successful communication of any message, whether from God or man, always requires interpretation. Interpretation is the process that allows us to understand the author's intended meaning. And in the box there we say the goal of the reading study process is to understand that, the author's intended meaning. Now again, which author? God or the human? They're the same. And you ascertain it by using human elements because God chose to write it in human elements, using human elements and human beings. So this is similar, similar, you know to what uh, like the Supreme Court has to do. You know the Supreme Court's got an old document over 200 years old, the Constitution. And they've got to figure out what, is, what does this mean? Now you can approach the Constitution with, different methods of interpreting it. And it's one of the reasons, one of the main reasons, that on a Supreme Court of nine justices you have some that are considered liberal justices and some considered conservative. What's the difference? They take a different approach to interpretation. And one approach is we want to know the original meaning. You guys have heard this, an originalist approach? Well that's what's meant by that. The original public meaning of these phrases in the Constitution. So you've got an Eighth Amendment to the Constitution that prohibits cruel and unusual punishments, cruel and unusual punishments. So does, does, did, does the original, did the original public meaning of cruel and unusual punishment mean you could not have capital punishment? You know, if you're a Supreme Court justice, that kind of thing comes up before you. And I would just say this to you that at the time the Constitution was written, they had had capital punishment. So there was was capital punishment all over the the colonies at at the time the Constitution was written. So whatever cruel and unusual punishment meant, it apparently did not mean you can't have any form of capital punishment. But if you're somebody that doesn't take an originalist approach, you're not trying to get the author's intended meaning, but rather you have a living Constitution. Anybody heard that? that's another another approach that. The meaning evolves over time. So here with you're trying to get to the author's intended meaning you're going to see that we're trying to get to what it meant when it was written. So again that next paragraph, interpretation is not often given sufficient consideration because it happens usually instantly. You don't have to think about it. That's because Most messages we receive have these two qualities. They're contemporary and they're local. And as a result, we automatically understand the author's intended meaning because we're familiar with the circumstances, customs, language, and many other factors that are involved in communication. Contemporary and local. Contemporary meaning the message that you're receiving is, is current. It's in time right now. Contemporary. So as I talk to you, we're contemporaries. So, I can say things and I can use phrases, and most of you are going to know what those are because we live at the same time. And we not only live at the same time, we live in the same place. We're local. So, if I say, you know, on a Sunday, the lions won today, contemporary and local, you would go, you're lion. No way. But you would know, I mean, our football team, right? <coughs> if you're in Rome 2,000 years ago and you go, the Lions won today. <laughs> <laughs> right? Oh my It means the Christians had a rough go of it. <laughs> Contemporary and local. I say the Lions won today, you don't have to think about it. You know I'm talking about the football team. And that's the way most of it goes. So you don't, you don't have to think about it. As a result, we automatically understand the author's intended meaning because we're familiar. The Bible however was written in the past. Therefore we have to work to consciously apply principles of interpretation we unconsciously use every day. So I want to really drive that home that when we do the work of interpreting the Bible we're not doing anything different than you're doing right now you're just having to think about it. And the reason you're having to think about it is because it's not contemporary and it's not local. So, in order to put it in its original context, now that's going to take take some work, but it's not anything different. The proper method of interpretation is called literal or better normal. The reason normal is better is, as we're going to see, because normal takes into account things like figures of speech. Sometimes people think literal means that there's no figurative language or any of that, but in the Bible there is, and normal interpretation understands that. The consistent application of the principles of normal interpretation will yield consistent interpretations. The reason varying interpretations of the Bible's message exist is that we don't all play by the same rules. So, just like with the the Supreme Court, you know, you got the living Constitution thing, you got the originals, people take different approaches to to interpreting the Bible. So, back to uh, Terry's question. One thing that that happens is that sometimes passages are spiritualized or allegorized. So, And and you have to decide in that context uh, when God says you're going to have I'm going to give Israel land does that mean dirt? That you walk on? That you're going to inherit? Uh, Or is it allegorized to something else, spiritualized to something else? And so that's part of why we come up with, that's part of the reason. Part of the reason. So, here are, we suggest, rules of interpretation that are common to any message, including the Bible's message, that it all has these three things, historical, literary, and grammatical context. So first... All communication has an historical, a historical context, and if you care to, you might jot next to that or to any of these that say context. Context determines meaning. Context determines meaning. You know. So, have you ever had? If you, those of you that have children or have raised your children, did you ever have a situation, or maybe you remember when you were a child and you did this? where you, know, you, just, um, you say something that's technically correct to your parents, but you said it with "tude. You said it with attitude. And then later, you say, then the, the, and your protest is, all I said was. Right? Which is technically correct, but context determines meaning. And the context in which you said that, was this with that attitude. right? And so you're getting punished. Um, and, and that's always, always the case. Now, we generally, unless we're, unless we're told in the context, can't tell attitude, but you can when you're speaking face-to-face. But all of those are factors in, in, in establishing context. And context determines meaning, and it includes historical, literary, grammatical. So, historical. Every book of the Bible was written at a particular time and place for a particular purpose. These and similar factors make up what is known as historical context. So, that means a few things. Interpret every biblical text in light of its purposes. Every author seeks to accomplish a purpose through his writing, his selection of those to whom. The theme, his tone, they're all related to his purpose. Therefore, in order to understand a passage's a message. It's helpful to understand the author's purpose. Well, how do you do that? Top of page 28. Sometimes it's just out and out stated for you. Here's the reason I wrote this. So here's 1 John 5.13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that, here's the reason, that you may know that you have eternal life. So that's 1 John chapter 5. That's the last chapter of 1 John. And in fact, it's the last verse in all of 1 John to the body of the letter right after that he's got some signing off language but this is the last part of he's saying i've written all of this to you for this reason that you may know that you have eternal life so now if you were to if you look back at the four and a half chapters that precede that you now see that in light of his purpose he's trying to give assurance of salvation through this so sometimes it's just told to you first uh, Timothy that I quoted earlier, 1 Timothy 3.14, I have written these things to you so that, here's the purpose, you may know how people ought to conduct themselves. Other times it's not explicitly stated, rather it's implied. It may be implied by other statements within the book. Here's Galatians chapter 1. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ. You're turning to a different gospel. It's apparent from these and other statements in the book of Galatians that this was written to address false teaching that threatened to win over the recipients of the the book. So you know the purpose by that. Or it may be implied by what's known about the author and the recipients. So, for example, Paul wrote these two letters to Timothy, 1st and 2nd Timothy. In the first, what I already quoted for you, he explicitly states the purpose. But then in his second letter he doesn't explicitly state the purpose, but if you read the four chapters of 2nd Timothy it becomes quite clear. You know, at the end, in chapter 4, it's the last chapter of the last book Paul wrote. And he says, the time for my departure is at hand. I've fought the fight, I've kept the faith. And you go and look at what he's writing to this young man. He is preparing him for the mantle of leadership. That's the purpose for this thing. And so he's trying to encourage Timothy to be strong in the Lord. So interpret every biblical text in light of its purposes. Second... Interpret at bottom of page 28 in light of its chronology. That is, where does it fit into the the time frame? That's why when we went through the survey of the Bible, you you got those timelines. So you can see when, when it was written. As noted, God did not produce the Bible all at once. Rather, it was composed over 1,600 years. The last book was written 1,900 years ago. So in order to achieve the purpose of understanding the author's intended meaning, it's necessary to place a given book within the time period that it was written. Often that can be determined by statements made in the book regarding events and or people about which dates are known. A good study Bible or commentary will be helpful for that. So remember I uh, mentioned 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 1. I'm sure you don't remember this. 1 Kings 6:1. And 1 Kings 6:1 tells us when the Exodus occurred in uh, the middle of the 15th century B.C., 1446 B.C. But 1st Kings 6.1 helps us with that, gives us a chronology. So then when we read in the book of Exodus all that's going on, we know something better about when all this is happening, who the pharaoh was at the time. Thirdly, interpret every biblical text in light of its geography. Christians today live thousands of miles from the countries where Bible events took place. Believers should become familiar with the relationships between ancient sites and current boundaries. In addition, it's valuable to learn about the terrain. Bible atlases are valuable resources for that. So you have statements in Scripture about going up to Jerusalem. And sometimes those statements are made about going up to Jerusalem when the person that's being described is already north of Jerusalem. You know, if I say I'm going up to Mackinac, you know why I'm saying that, because it's up north. But sometimes these people are already north of Jerusalem, and it still says they're going up to Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem's elevated. And so you're always going up to Jerusalem, no matter where you're, you're coming from. And it also explains something else. In the book of Psalms, you've got a set of Psalms that are called the Psalms of Ascent. Or in the King James, it says a, a Psalm of Degrees. But the idea is you're ascending. So Psalm 121, Psalm 121 verse 1 says, I lift my eyes to the hills from where my help comes. My help is from the Lord. So this is a pilgrim psalm. You're you're going to the holy city and you look the hill and there you see. And so you're singing praise for that reason. So it's a song of ascending to Jerusalem. That's part of the terrain. It's helpful then to know know that. Fourthly, interpret every biblical text in light of its culture. Modern day thought and behavior are different from that of Bible times. Furthermore, there are cultural differences between groups of people in Scripture itself. The Roman culture of Paul's day was totally different. from the Hebrew culture of Moses' day. So it's important to understand the culture then behind any given text. You know, so um, you, take, uh, you take Deuteronomy 22 and verse 5. says that a man should not wear that which pertains to a woman. So in our day that means a man should not wear a dress. For example. But you know in that day Actually, those guys were kind of wearing dresses, weren't they? The culture's different. What pertains to a man pertains to a woman at one time in one culture can can change. But in your culture, that's the principle that needs to be applied. So knowing those cultural issues is is helpful. So here's the first principle of interpretation you get out of all that historical context. A text cannot mean what it never meant. That's a really good principle. That's why we have it in a box there. So bear that in mind, it doesn't mean something today that it didn't mean then. And you first and always want to know what it meant before you make application of it today. What did it mean at the time it was written? So that yields a number of applications for us. One is, you if you're in a Bible study now, you know, with six or eight or 10 people and your Bible study goes like this, you all get in a circle, and you read a passage, and then you say, Ben, what does that mean to you? And then Ben says, you know, that, I think that means, and I'm sure it would be very erudite and scholarly, and, and no offense, but I mean really, who cares what Ben thinks it means, okay? <laughs> or Matthew, or Lewis, or me. Really, we, what we want to know is what it meant and you can only get to what it meant by putting it in its historical context. The meaning is found in the text when it was written, as it was written, for the purpose for which it was written. All right, secondly, there's historical context, and then there's literary literary context. In addition to the historical setting, interpretation is influenced by literary factors. Different literary types are to be interpreted differently. For example, an apple a day keeps the doctor away is a proverb. Now it's not a biblical proverb, but it's a, it's a proverb. It's generally true. And a proverb, by its very nature, is not a blanket guarantee, but rather a general truth. Generally, it's saying if you eat healthy, you'll be healthy. That's, that's generally what it's saying. But you know, you know healthy people who drop dead, who eat healthy and drop dead. Or people who, you know, exercise a lot. Uh, anybody old enough to remember Jim Fix, who like wrote, popularized jogging and, and running for like regular people, he did. Well, he wrote, you know, he wrote he wrote a book, best selling book on that. Everybody started reading his book, and people started jogging. And Jim Fix, who wrote the book and was a really healthy guy, dropped dead while he was jogging. So, you know, I was a runner up until that time. <laughs> and I said, I'm a boy. That stuff is bad for you, man. <laughs> Stay away from that. So it's a general truth. It's not, it's not a blanket guarantee. The Bible uses a number of literary types and devices that you have to take into account. So, interpret every biblical text in light of its, its form. You've got poetry, narrative, proverbs, parables. Each of them is interpreted differently and accordingly. So, narrative portions of Scripture. So, when we say narrative, we're talking about portions of the Bible where it's narrating, What happened? It's narrating what happened to other people. The book of Acts that we're going through on Sunday mornings. It's all narrative. It's all narrating what happened to other people. Most of your Bible, the, the largest type of literature in the Bible is actually narrative. It's narrating what happened to other people. So here's what's important about that. Narrative portions describe the actions of others. While epistolary, that is the letters in your, like your New Testament, prescribe actions for others. So if you don't get that right, if you, if you read the narrative portions where it's narrating what happened to other people and you think that that means that I'm supposed to do all the stuff that's being narrated about them, you're going to be in a world of hurt. We cite Acts chapter 1 here. It's narrative. It says, The disciples went to Jerusalem... But is the Bible telling you to go to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 1? Or any place else, for that matter? <laughs> they went to the temple in Acts chapter 3. Well, good luck with that. There is no temple now. So it's narrating what, what happened with them. Now, you can make application of those things. I've been doing that for months now, <laughs> the book of Acts. But it's not telling me to go to Jerusalem or go to the, the temple. It's narrating that. This is the great fallacy for our Charismatic and Pentecostal friends. That they believe that everything that's narrated in the Bible, we're supposed to do. I know this because I grew up Pentecostal. So if the apostles did it, we're supposed to do it. And in fact, uh, one of the passages that's often quoted to try to prove this is Hebrews 13 and verse 8. Hebrews 13 and verse 8, it simply says this, Jesus Christ the same yesterday today and forever that's actually used as a proof text since Jesus is the same yesterday today and forever then the way Jesus gets his work done is the same yesterday today and forever that's the misapplication that they they make of that so you got you've got to recognize that otherwise you'll find yourself assuming you have to do things that the bible's not telling you to do but you have the letters Paul's writing these letters to churches those things can be brought pretty much straight across for us. For example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. Paul says, uh, he says, uh, it is God's will, I'm quoting, it is God's will that you be sanctified. And then in the NIV it has a colon. It's God's will that you be sanctified. And then it says that you avoid sexual immorality. Well, okay. That, that's, a direct, that's a direct application to us. It's God's will that you be set apart, be holy. And one of the major ways you do that is avoiding sexual immorality. That was true 2,000 years ago, and it's true today as well. So you interpret accordingly. Bottom of page 29. Interpret every biblical text in light of its literary device. Normal human com- communication often employs devices like figures of speech. So one might say, my mouth is on fire, if you just tasted something that's very hot. In John 10.7, Jesus says, I am the gate. Obviously, Jesus was using a literary device to make his point. Just as one's mouth is not actually in flames, Jesus is not actually a gate. Literal or normal interpretation takes that into account. So here is your second principle. All texts are not alike. So parables, you know, one of the features of parables is they have one central moral to the the parable. And so the details are all in support of just that one central moral of the parable. The details are only important as they support that. If you try to make the details central, then you're going to miss the point of the parable. So, Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. You guys remember that? And so, you know, Lazarus was poor all of his life and he begged and he begged for just the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. And then Lazarus dies, but Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom. He goes to heaven. The rich man dies, he goes to hell. You guys remember all of that? Okay. I mean, I've heard sermons on this where, you know, the legs of the table represent things. The crumbs represent represent things I mean you're just getting so bogged down in these details and frankly making stuff up that you're missing the point of the of the parable and it, and it happens you know all the time, unfortunately, so all communication has a historical context, has a literary context, which gives you two principles: uh, a text cannot mean what it never meant, and secondly, all texts are not alike and then We'll see another couple of principles next week. Okay, So we'll pick up on page 30, and we will get done. I said next week, two weeks, because we don't meet next Wednesday because of Thanksgiving. You guys owe me 30 seconds because it's uh, 8.14. (laughs) Have a blessed Thanksgiving if I don't see you before.